Welcome to Hub Headlines. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in the Hub for March 1st. Up first is Christopher Hume writing on why Canadian cities are weak, how current governance models impact our cities, and numbers that show how outdated our cities are. Canada's cities hold the key to Canada's future, but first they must be freed from the chains of Canada's past. Trapped in a badly outdated and hopelessly paternalistic governance structure, municipal governments, regardless of their size, are mere creatures of the provinces. Little wonder they can never rise above the level of their political masters, who all too often are provincial in both senses of the word. Not only does this make civic democracy a desperate illusion, but it also means that the 80% of Canadians who live in towns and cities and the suburbs in between have little control of their political destiny. This does not bode well for the state of the nation, especially at a time when our well-being relies more than ever on the sort of entrepreneurial creativity nurtured in communities that are dense, diverse, and dynamic. These are where the critical mass of goods and services, education, culture, and cash that underpin economic success are found. Cities are also where many of the most troubling issues of the 21st century are playing out. This includes everything from homelessness and housing to public health, refugee resettlement, and climate change. Without the means to deal with these burgeoning crises, Canadians face increased social division, economic decline, and growing inequality. Even in the best-case scenario, civic impotence abandons cities to the mercy of provincial governments, who are more often the cause of municipal troubles than the solution. Take former Ontario Premier Mike Harris's decision to dump $3 billion worth of programs onto that province's towns and cities. It was called downloading. And as David Crombie, the former mayor of Toronto and federal conservative cabinet minister, said at the time, it is wrong in principle, devastating in practice. Even in Alberta, Premier Danielle Smith has had to take time out from waging war with the Trudeau Liberals to continue her province's ongoing battle with Edmonton. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi referred to Alberta's 2022 budget as a slap in the face. Calgary, he charged home of the energy industry, gets more money. Edmonton needs help, so he insisted, to deal with homelessness, infrastructure, and business revitalization. Let's not forget the refugee crisis. Though immigration is a federal responsibility, it's cities that must sort out the mess. Most asylum seekers in Canada end up in its two largest urban centres, Toronto and Montreal. Last summer, the situation in the former was so bad that many refugees ended up sleeping in the streets. After months of pressure, Ottawa finally coughed up $362 million to feed and house newly arrived refugees across the country. Montreal got $100 million, Toronto $143 million. Even with that, it is up to the cities to determine how to handle the growing influx of newcomers, most desperate, penniless, and ill-prepared for the harsh realities of life in Canada. Similar examples of this expanding gap between civic governance and civic responsibilities abound. The migrant crisis was solved, sort of by one-time federal grants. But what's needed is systemic change, and more to the point, empowered civic decision-making and taxing authority. The legislation that created Canada, the British North America Act, was passed by the British Parliament in 1867. 
After many amendments, it finally achieved its current form in 1982. Cities went unmentioned except for one section that made it clear provinces have exclusive jurisdiction over cities and other municipalities in the province. As a result, cities have few powers except those granted by the province. Of course, what the province gives, it can also take. Torontonians were reminded of this in 2018 when Premier Doug Ford abruptly chopped the city council from 47 to 25 seats. Adding insult to injury, he made the cut halfway through a civic election. Even in those provinces that have so-called charter cities, Quebec, Nova Scotia, British Columbia and Alberta, the extra powers which typically include planning, transit and governance turn out to be largely meaningless in practice and can be overturned by a simple legislative majority. Worse still, when the Supreme Court upheld Ford's intervention with the Toronto City Council, even though it broke provisions of the 2006 City of Toronto Act, it killed any hope that Canada's cities were inching ever closer to becoming their own masters. As often noted, the 157,000 inhabitants of Prince Edward Island have more control over their lives than do the 3 million inhabitants of Toronto, which, by the way, accounts for 20% of Canada's GDP. All this would matter less if property taxes and user fees on which cities rely were adequate to the demands they face. What municipalities need are sales and income taxes. Unlike property and sales taxes, both regressive income taxes, which are progressive, increase with higher salaries. And like good children who should be seen but not heard, Canadian cities are not allowed by law to run deficits. Imagine if so-called senior levels of government were bound by the same rule. Though in Canada this sounds radical, even heretical, the list of cities in Europe and North America that do levy sales and or income taxes includes New York, Paris, Copenhagen, Memphis and Oakland. By contrast, when Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow proposed a 1% city sales tax, the silence was deafening. Months later, the province has yet to respond. As the Federation of Canadian Municipalities put it in a recent statement, municipalities have very limited options to pay for growth. That's why FCM is calling on the federal government to convene provincial, territorial and municipal leaders to discuss a new municipal growth framework that better aligns municipal revenue with economic growth. Legal scholars agree the best way to achieve civic empowerment is not a constitutional amendment per se, but by invoking Section 43 of the Constitution Act. It allows amendments that affect one or more, but not all, provinces to be approved by individual provincial legislatures with the federal parliament and senate. It has been used on rare occasions, but never to enhance the taxing authority of Canadian cities. In 2001, for example, the provision was used by Newfoundland to change its name to Newfoundland and Labrador. The problem, of course, is the province's reluctance to surrender any of their powers to cities. From their perspective, there's simply not enough to go around. And so, 24 years into the new millennium, Canada's cities remain stuck in a past they outgrew generations ago. That was a commentary by Christopher Hume, he was the architecture critic and urban issues columnist of the Toronto Star from 1982 to 2016. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Malcolm Jolly, writing on what the wine world is currently experiencing.
and where innovation is currently happening as explained in a personal anecdote. Wine export numbers are coming in from 2023 and, unsurprisingly, they are down all around. They also down more in sales revenue than in volume, so it seems like people are both drinking less wine and less expensive wine. The numbers I looked at this week were from France, Italy, and Australia, but seem to be part of a global trend, since there are five countries that more or less dominate imports, the US, UK, Germany, Canada, and Japan. Big producers are accordingly pivoting, offering less for grapes grown by contractors and limiting the number of growers they'll buy from. This is double bad news for small producers who, facing a shrinking market and diminishing returns of what's left of it, are increasingly unable to cut their losses by reverting to selling to the big guys. All the boats are going down with the tide, but at least the bigger boats and recession-proof luxury yachts can sail out to deeper waters. Many smaller, independent producers depend on the precise segment of the market that is shrinking as consumers tighten their belts. Making wine is expensive. Even if you don't have to buy land, a winery is capital, energy, and labor-intensive. Not only has the cost of everything gone up, even bottles, but so has the cost of borrowing. When money was cheap, it would have made sense to borrow it against global growing sales of $30 bottles of wine. Now that all those metrics are going the other way, things must seem grim. Wine cooperatives in Europe came out of the bad economic times of the 1930s. While the trend of the last 50 years has been for grower families to make their own wine, perhaps some will rejoin or recreate a cooperative model to keep grape prices high and take advantage of economies of scale. The Niagara Custom Crush Pad I wrote about a few weeks ago, and commercial winemaking services like it, is another innovative model that might keep up the supply of small production wines. I met two young gentlemen last week who seemed to be bucking the trends and growing the pie, or at least their slice of it, by being flexible and innovative. The first is a Canadian, William Quinteros, who runs a wine importing agency he conceived of during the lockdowns of COVID, known as Bottles and Barrels. The second is an Italian, Niccolo Chioccioli Altadonna, who makes wine in small batches in Tuscany at his family's eponymous estate, Chioccioli Altadonna. I met them on top of a boxing gym in the west end of Toronto called 13th Round, with which William and his family have a connection. His father Marvin Quinteros, two-time Ontario boxing champion, Golden Gloves champion, and Ontario Winter Games champion, is head trainer. That gym is open for paying adults to train in, but its big mission is community outreach. 13th Round for Life is a charity that offers free boxing lessons and leadership programs to young people from Toronto's underserved communities. Its most famous benefactor is boxing enthusiast Bruce Croxon, who is best known for his successful careers in business. Think Lava Life Broadcasting Dragon's Den and Finance Round 13 Capital. When William Quinteros pitched Bruce Croxon on a wine agency that would set aside 2% of gross sales for the 13-round for life charity while serving the high-income earners who paid to come and work out and train at the gym, the Dragon spotted a winner. The offices over the gym serve as Bottles Barrel's office and tasting room, and I ended up there with Quinteros, Chioccioli Altadonna, and about two dozen of the agency's regular customers on the recommendation of a mutual friend. Or, I should say, the recommendation to an invitation because what was happening that Friday evening was less a tasting than a party. Bottles and Barrels is in many respects like most other agencies, placing products into the Liquor Control Board of Ontario stores, selling to the restaurant trade, and selling directly to consumers through their website and email offers. 
but the party featuring the Kio Choli products is their unique selling product. Lots of agencies have wine clubs, but they're largely anonymous affairs organized on a hub-and-spoke model. The bottle and barrel tasting, held in the same building as the charity it supports, and where the first customers came to work out in, was more like a community event or a party of old friends. This was a community model the guests were friends or friends of friends of friends of friends, like me. We weren't there to simply listen to Niccolo Chioccioli Altadonna talk about his wines or write notes down as we tasted them in silence. It was chatty, and we were expected to circulate and talk about what we liked or didn't or preferred over others. It was very clear that everyone wanted to be there irrespective of whatever commerce might or might not ensue. If William Quinteros has figured out an interesting way to sell wine, then Niccolo Chioccioli Altadonna and his family have found a complementary way to use their Tuscan winery in the heart of the Chianti Classico region. Niccolo and his brother and sister Enrico in Ginevra are the offspring of Stefano Chioccioli, one of Italy's foremost and highest scoring wine consultants. Perhaps the winery acts as something of a laboratory since they are doing some interesting things there. We tasted an orange wine whose fruit was delicate, despite the gentle tannin structure they hung on, a silky Sangiovese made in clay amphora, a Chianti Classico with a touch of peppery Syrah in the blend, as well as Super Tuscan Bordeaux blends from decades-old vines, they were all lovely. Then things got weird, well not really. It's just that we moved from the cellar to what Niccolo's brother Enrico calls the wine stillery where he makes vodka, gin, and vermouth. Enrico lives by a grapes-to-glass manifesto meaning everything is made from Tuscan grapes and botanicals. The spirits were smooth and dangerous, but the red vermouth might have been more perilous, especially when mixed into a Negroni made with their gin. Round 13 indeed. That was a commentary by Malcolm Jolly. He's a wine and food journalist, that's it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive all our best commentary and analysis each morning by email, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. Hub Headlines is produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin Granovsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.